0: Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is June 21st, 2021, and I am delighted to introduce our program, Palestinians, Israelis, 1948 and now, on researching, teaching, and asserting the reality of the Nakba. We are joined today by Professors Lena Dalashe, Shai Kani. And Shireen Saikali, thank you so much for being here with us. In recent weeks, the world's attention turned to Palestinians in Jerusalem, Sheikh Jarrah, and Silwan neighborhoods, fighting forced displacement from their longtime homes. Displacement that, in the eyes of many Palestinians, is part of an ongoing process of dispossession that started in 1948 and continues through the present day. Palestinians call this process of displacement, dispossession, and exile the Nakba, Arabic for the catastrophe, which refers to the estimated 750,000 Palestinians who were expelled from their homes and lands during the creation of the State of Israel. For decades, stories of the Nakba, both personal experiences and an historical accounting of facts have been systematically hidden, discredited, ignored. Scholars, both Palestinian and non-Palestinian, have struggled to document and establish that the history and challenge to establish that history and to challenge the denialism and mythologies. Like, for instance, the myth that Arabs intended to push the Jews into the sea or that Palestinians left their homes at the behest of Arab armies or that pre-1948 Arab residents of Palestine had no shared Palestinian identity or no true links to the land. Those myths have flourished in the place of true scholarship and truth-telling. In this context, we have invited three leading scholars of the Nakba to talk about how they approach researching, writing, and teaching this history and the importance of amplifying personal individual stories as a critical point of access to the broader story of the Nakba, of nationalism, of colonialism, citizenship the construction of racial categories in the middle east i'm going to briefly introduce our guests here in alphabetical order their full bios are available on our website first lena dalache associate professor of history at humboldt state university lena is currently finishing a manuscript on the social and political history of nazareth from 1940 to 1966 tracing how palestinians who remained in israel in 1948 negotiated their incorporation in the state. Before Lena began her academic career, she earned a law degree at Hebrew University. Next, Shai Khazkani, Assistant Professor of History and Jewish Studies at the University of Maryland College Park. Shai's book, Dear Palestine, A Social History of the 1948 War, was published by Stanford University Press and just came out a couple of months ago, a few weeks ago maybe. Before Shai was an academic, He worked as a journalist covering the West Bank and Israeli military. military. And last, Shireen Saikali, associate professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Shireen is now working on her second book, which explores Palestinians and the question of Palestine and a global history of race, capital, slavery, and dispossession. Thank you so much, Lena Shai, and Shireen for being here today. Thank you. We're going to begin with the big picture and I will remind you and also our audience, this is not an academic conference, it's not a class, though I want to attend both with all three of you, but that's not what we're doing today. We have our non-academic audience here, Foundation for Middle East Peace audience, Project 48 audience, and we want to learn from these experts, from you, our experts. So Shireen, start us off, please. What does the term Nakba refer to? Who coined this term? And what does the Nakba mean to Palestinians?
1: Thank you so much, Sarah Ann, um, for bringing us bringing us together. It's always such a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Um, the Nakba, as you laid out, um, actually refers, initially it referred to 1948 with the, with the you know, uh, I think it, what's really important for people to remember is that the birth of the Israeli state Was also the birth of the Palestinian refugee condition, and those two birth, birth, those two birthing's um, are really uh, uh, crucial to understanding the conflict um, today. So, as you laid out, it it initially referred to the seven hundred to seven hundred and fifty thousand Palestinians who. Um, either fled under the force of fire or were expelled in 1948 and became refugees. It also refers to the 470 to some 500 villages that were destroyed under a military plan called Plan Dalit that we can talk about a bit more in, in a while. The first person who actually coined the term Nakba, um, and we don't actually have a history of the term uh, as such on its own. And and that history is um, demanding to be written because the language of Nakba and Menkubin is something that's actually quite common um, to refer to people who have um, suffered catastrophe usually during times of war. Um, the first person who coined it was a, an intellectual of Syrian descent named Constantine Zurek who, um, who wrote a book called The Meaning of Nakba, The Meaning of the Nakba in 1948. Um, and uh, there, there's a lot of really interesting work about this intellectual figure. He's part of um, a, a broader kind of cultural, program or cultural um, kind of renaissance called the Nahda that many of us have written about and he is it's when you look at this book and I do believe it's in translation I could be wrong um, it's really kind of its own historical document Um, it's kind of this person who is in the midst of catastrophe, trying to explain it, um, trying to write history as it happens. I think it's really important that we understand, however, that for most Palestinians, the the Nakba no longer refers to simply 1948. I think the experience of catastrophe, the ongoingness of dispossession, the multiple scales of that kind of dispossession, the kind of spectacular violence that we saw this last month, Um, but also the very daily dispossessions that that we don't see um, that are happening in places like Baita, now just outside of Nablus, that um, the world saw in Sheikh Jarrah for sure but that that kind of dispossession that's happening on a daily level um so in a way the nakba refers to some of these big events right so Think about, obviously, 1948, but also 1967, when another 250,000 uh, Palestinians become refugees. Um, think, too, of 1993 and the Oslo process as another station in the um, the, the What happens as a result of Oslo with gentrification and isolation and people being unable to um, be together and uh, to be in community, um, I think this is something that is is really crucial for people to understand that what the Nakba means for Palestinians is our inability to be together. It is a separation of Palestinians um, from one another, from their families, um, from their communities, from their spaces of worship, from their spaces of everyday life.
0: Thank you so much, Shirin. Thank you. Lina, your work focuses on Palestinians who were either able to remain in their homes or who were internally displaced but remained within the borders of what became Israel and became Israeli citizens in the wake of, of 1948, if, we'll, if I will take from Shireen and think of 1948 as, as one station in the Nakba, the, the key station, but one station in the Nakba. So you're focused on this particular population of Palestinians who became citizens. Will you tell us
2: what the Nakba meant and means for them? Uh, Thank you, Sarah. um, For the Palestinians who would become citizens of Israel in the following year, because the the process of citizenship actually takes a few years, even though, in short, we'll call it Palestinian citizens of Israel, but this is a much more complex process that Shira Robinson has talked really well about. Uh, But um, in... In the, in the, I understand the Palestinian, this, this story as a part of the, the larger Palestinian story. And this is a part of the, um, I think the contribution of my work is to kind of reinsert the Palestinian, these Palestinians into the Palestinian story. Because in certain ways, they were more fortunate, right? They, they, they got to stay home mostly, or at least, you know, at a stone's throw from their homes, literally in certain cases, like Safuria refugees who end up in Nazareth, they literally overlook their their village. So this is people who in certain ways um, had it better because home was still somewhere, except at that point, just like the rest of the Palestinians, their lives have been shattered because home no longer was what it used to be, what home was. They were now fragments of a nation. 750,000 Palestinians um, uh, became refugees. So of those, only about 160,000 end up being inside what becomes Israel. So this is a very small fraction. They're concentrated in three main geographical areas, the Galilee in the north, uh, the Negev or the Nakab in the south, where the Bedouin population was actually forced, forcefully relocated into a small place. And speaking of the continuing Nakba, uh, Al-Araqib, for instance, is one of the villages which are now trying to stay in their lands. But this is land that they were forced into in the aftermath of 1948 into this tiny sliver in the northern part of the Negev, and then the third population is the Palestinians in the um, in the in what is called the Little Triangle, which was annexed to Israel in the aftermath of the um, uh, Armistice Line Agreement. So there, is three geographic areas that are fully basically disconnected from each other. So it's three islands in which people are under direct control by the military that actually intervenes in everyday activities. Literally, you couldn't leave your town or village, not the area, your town or village without um, the military um, government intervening in every aspect of your life. So this is a terrorized population that has been shattered and devastated and now subject to military role, separated completely from the rest of the Palestinians and the Arab world, but even internally within each other, it is a long process and a lot of struggles to even maintain that contact. Um, They're surveilled, they're excluded, they're made, understand that they're a defeated and excluded minority at every turn from 1948 until today, to be clear. I mean, if you look at the nation state law to kind of understand the continuities, the nation state law that was um, instituted a few years ago, it's the same story. It's the one that keeps saying, this is a Jewish state and you are here by our grace. And they are then forced to repeatedly assert, despite the Nakba, Palestine, still means that we are Palestinians and we're still a part of this country. And what we have to do now is try to um, basically make this citizenship, this imposed citizenship on us include our Palestinianness and and hold on to that.
0: Thank you so much, Lena. It, it's, um... It's so powerful to get to speak to historians and understand that when we're thinking and talking about history, we're always standing in the present, always understanding history from this particular moment. And what you have laid out to us so powerfully is the incredible um, relevance and resonance of the Nakba and the events of the Nakba up until this exact moment and now projected into the the future. So, and we're going to talk about, um, I'm going to ask you about Nakba denialism and what that means to have to prove the history of the Nakba, but I, I want to start first with a, with a question about myths, actually, and myth-making. So Shai, your book just came out. You wrote about Mazel Tov, congratulations. Um, you wrote about 1948, based on views from above, propaganda issued by different authorities and institutions, and especially views from, the, from below, views from the ground. You wrote about, um, you, you uh, used evidence that you accessed through a trove of, of personal letters. And we're going to get into how you got those letters and, and what they mean. But the letters themselves challenge some established views and myths. And I, I wanna ask you about this myth-busting a little bit. So can you tell us maybe just one example of a common myth that Israelis and others hold about the Nakba and talk to us about why myths are so potent?
3: Thank you so much, uh, Sarah-Ann, for organizing this. Uh, Shireen, Lina, I'm I'm thrilled to be here with you. Um, it's interesting. I actually didn't set out to, to write sort of a book of myth busting, but that's certainly Uh, a bonus if there is some of that uh, in there. And what I set out to do is look at these um, interactions between um, elites, tribal, national, religious, others, uh, and their sort of produced narrative in ordinary uh, women and men. And the narratives that are promoted by those elites on the one hand, and then how ordinary people conform or dissent with some of those uh, grand uh, narratives. And and I do some of that through personal letters and, and hopefully we'll we'll get to talk more about that uh, later on. Now, one major Israeli um, talking point that everyone I think who grew up in Israel would be familiar with is the argument um, that the Arabs, it's never actually specified who exactly had this um, genocidal intent in 1948, most commonly referred to as this uh, intention, quote unquote, to push Jews into the sea. What is interesting is that this claim um, is already made in the midst of the 1948 war, right? In speeches by David Ben-Gurion, in education materials distributed to Israeli soldiers. And I set out to actually examine whether or not, um, and that's part of the book, um, this Arab propaganda in 1948 actually makes that point, right? Of quote unquote, pushing Jews into the sea as a war aim. Um, And I found out um, it does not. And I actually spent several months on this and looked through all the Arabic sources uh, that I could find. and there's really nothing like this, certainly not as a war aim. And when you actually try to follow some of the evidence trail of scholars who made that claim, you see that they often rely on earlier scholars um, for which there is no way to, to verify or examine their source base, or more commonly, on officially Israeli state propaganda. Um, And when you actually look um, at some of the evidence, and I I don't want to burden you with all the details, but you actually see, for example, that intelligence reports of the IDF from the war, right, uh, classified reports disseminated internally, actually say, for example, about the volunteer army of the Arab League, it's known as the Arab Liberation Army, saying very specifically that they have no genocidal intents, nothing of that sort. Um, Now, certainly there are calls for violence and that there's all sorts of violence, including brutal violence. That is not the claim that I'm making. But is there this very wildly disseminated claim until today, right, that uh, there was some larger uh, plan to exterminate the Jews or something like that? The answer to this, uh, I think, uh, based on my research is no. And I welcome those who'd like to make counter evidence based on actual examination uh, of relevant sources. Um, By the way, there are some fringe Arab organizations in 48 that uh, paddle anti-Jewish and sometimes anti-Semitic propaganda, but they are very, very far removed from the center Palestinian organization and the Arab armies fighting uh, during the war. And I'll just end with one example, uh, a quote from a pamphlet of the Arab Liberation Army in 1948 to soldiers, right? So um, something that I was able to to locate in Arabic and says very, very clearly, um, religion and the Arab tradition, I'm quoting here, which we inherited from our forefathers necessitate that we spare women, children, and the the elderly, this uh, duty must be observed. Another pamphlet talks about following the Geneva Conventions um, and uh, um, 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 all sorts of other laws of warfare. Again, the point is that you need to actually look at the evidence and not rely on these talking points, however they may have been uh, entrenched. And last, I would say, it actually uh, while taking a look the sort of propaganda that the IDF disseminates during the war, where you actually have, you know, education officers coming together and talking about whether or not it makes sense to teach Jewish soldiers coming from around the world to hate the enemy and whether that enemy is akin to the Amalekites or the seven nations of Canaan. And what that does, that may mean, on things like killing civilians. So the story is much, much, much more complicated. And I wanna encourage uh, hopefully uh, some of those uh, listening to, to look at some uh, of the details, uh, including some of the myth that we may be familiar with for a very long time.
0: Thank you so much, Shai. I just want to add for clarification that the Amalekites and the, the seven nations of Canaan, these are, these are biblical references, biblical enemies. Um, in some cases, permanent eternal enemies of, of the Jewish people. Um, and we will come back to, hopefully we're going to have time to talk to you about this socialization towards violence, which is so so interesting and so important in, in what you're telling us. Um, and also, I really appreciate that you said, don't go by the talking points, but look at the evidence because this is why we're having the three of you on today and why we're so grateful to you for doing your work you are sifting through the evidence, spending months trying to chase down a a document. This is something that that most of us don't spend our time on, and you do a great service for for all of us by doing this work. So I just want to thank you again. Forgive me if I'm gushing, but I have so much respect for the work that you do and so much gratitude. So Shy. I we talked. You talked about myths for a moment. We talked. We started to talk talk about myths, and you talked about a myth around uh, the Arab Liberation Army or the Arab armies in 1948. But I want to ask you to to to, uh, flip the mirror for a moment and talk about how Jewish Israelis specifically relate to the Nakba, if they know even that word and what it means. So, can you talk to us about what Jewish Israelis know about the Nakba, about what is admitted or, or um, agreed upon and what is, what is denied?
3: So this is actually, I think we're really uh, in an interesting moment in this context. Um, uh, we are in some ways in the midst of a process of normalizing the term Nakba in Hebrew. Now that does not mean of course, that there is an acknowledgement of the culpability of Israel Jewish society. That's not what it means. But it does mean that a decade ago, um, this was uh, largely an unfamiliar term um, within Hebrew discourse, and that's no longer the case, right? So mainstream TV shows, including uh, the most famous sort of uh, um, comedy night shows in Israeli TV, use this term uh, on a regular basis. And I think that the reason for that, um, obviously it's very difficult to point out and some of these are are obviously my observation and they're not actually based on rigorous research. Uh, But if I had to step back and and think about this a little bit, I think that clearly the activity of the Israeli NGO uh, Zohrot who actually works on introducing Israeli Jewish society to the Nakba narrative is very important in this context. But also the um, activities of all sort of right-wing organization uh, in Israel, which, of course, tried to discredit the idea of the Nakba, but ended up popularizing at least its existence. And I think that's actually a significant thing. Now, how this will play out, that's very soon to tell. My own sense is that every time there is a Nakba law or a reference of this or an Israeli politician mentions this, that a few more uh, people in Israel and elsewhere who may not be familiar with this may look up this term. I think that the gatekeepers in Israel and elsewhere, they also get this. And so in some way, what is left for them to do is try to police the actual words used about Israel-Palestine. And I know we talked a lot at uh, FMEP about the battles surrounding the definition of anti-Semitism. I think all these are tied to this. Um, How this will go, uh, we'll see, but definitely a significant uh, change in recent years.
0: Great, thank you so much. Lena coming back to you and this question of, of focusing on the Nakba, the, the, the why. Do you consider that your choice, Well, why did you decide to focus on the Nakba for your research and do you consider that as a, an activist choice, a political
2: choice? That's an excellent question, thank you. Um, so I'm a Palestinian citizen of Israel myself. I was born and raised in a small village in the Galilee. Um, my parents were um, born um, very soon after the um, the creation of the state. My grandparents experienced the Nakba themselves, and I grew up in a very political household. So I was aware that I'm Palestinian. I was aware of the Nakba and of the Palestinian struggle um, and the injustices that we experienced from a, a very young age. In um, and I was a political activist in, 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 in Israel-Palestine throughout college and, and afterwards. And when I came to the U.S., I initially had a very different project in mind. But I started, as I started reading more, I was realizing that the Palestinians who become citizens of Israel have been put into this special niche in Palestinian history and in Israeli history. They became the Arab Israelis. Um, in uh, which is um, Hillel Cohen actually shows that it was a, 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 an intentional Israeli project of basically disconnecting the Palestinians from their lands and their, their claim to the land and, and from their Palestinian-ness. Um And somehow the literature kind of accepted it. We have a jump between 48 and 67 that kind of, you know, ignores this group other than, you know, kind of that, like, you know, very um, you know, passing mention. Um, And then kind of, that also takes the Palestinian, those Palestinians out of the story of the Nakba, right? They're they're this different group that has a very different history. And then all of a sudden the Palestinian history is written in a way that it either starts or ends in 48. And because of that, we, the Palestinians who become citizens of Israel um, are out of that, out of all narratives basically. And also not seen as a part of the people who are experiencing. This Nakba. So for me, this project was um, not only an intellectual one, but one that actually um, sought to reaffirm continuity within the Palestinian history to say the fact that the Nakba happened traumatic and catastrophic and earth shattering as it was, does not mean that the Palestinian history um, is bifurcated that it basically stops or ends. You don't ever talk about history as beginning or ending. I mean, how people talk about Israel in the 1920s or whatever, when it didn't even exist, that actually did begin in 1948. But somehow the Palestinians are relegated into, as a part of the denial of Palestinianness as a national identity, by the way, it's a part of, of this kind of consistent project. So for me, my work kind of says, I'm asserting that despite these changes, there is a continuity in the sense that the Palestinians who saw themselves as Palestinians in Nazareth and in other parts of Palestine, continued seeing themselves as Palestinians and struggling to assert Palestinianness under the profound and um, uh, traumatic experiences um, from 48 and then afterwards. And that what they tried to do in this process is then both safeguard their place within ho- their homeland through negotiating and reasserting and reaffirming Israeli citizenship, uh, but also insisting that that citizenship um, does not negate and, in fact, must include their Palestinianness as a component. So they become active participants uh, in uh, shaping Israeli citizenship as they, um, they contest it.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for that the your clarity around the, what what is being asserted here, um, continuity and identity and, and shaping of this category of citizenship, um, which I'm going to ask you about in a moment, but 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 before we go there, you spoke about the denial of Palestinian national identity of Palestinians as a people. And I want to ask you, Shireen, to to comment on what Lena said um, and also to speak about how, Nakba denialism and fake myths around the Nakba and Palestinians, how that affects your scholarship and your teaching, Um, and more broadly, what does it mean for Palestinians to to be so denied and challenged in, in such a profound way? Thank you. Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, I think exactly as Lena kind of laid out, it's almost as if we are put in this position of constantly evidencing ourselves. I too, am a child of refugees. So, you know, um, like all of us on this webinar, we're not just um, historians of this event were products of it, and I think that um, that that the that the pressure and the fear around constantly having to evidence your history is one of the things that we have, I believe, together um, through our collaborative work, been able to challenge. And here I I, I want to say I want to really emphasize on Zohrot that Zohrot is. Um, a Palestinian and Israeli organization, right, and that it has built on multiple strands of political organizing inside Israel, right, um, ranging from the Communist Party to, to you know, multiple different kinds of political formations. So, you know, I say this in every time I come on your webinar, which is, please let us remember the force of political movements, because often those movements get written out of our historical um, narratives. And Zochrot is an amazing initiative. It is one of many that has also benefited and learned from all of these efforts. Um, I want to make just four quick points um, that I think overlap with your question, but that that, um, I was inspired as I was listening to both uh, Lina and Shai, who are two of the, you know, most amazing writers on Palestine. If you haven't read them, please read them as soon as you can. Um, Shai's new book is incredible and Lina's soon to be forthcoming book about to be out book is also one of the most amazing things i've read about palestine precisely because what she does is invite us to think about how do people transcend across catastrophe how do we not allow catastrophe how do we not take for granted that catastrophe is a complete rupture right and so she asks about how do people continue life through catastrophe. On the point on primary documents, I feel like this is something that um, is really important for all of us to take to heart. I think that um, there are many documents that people believe that they understand, but, but never go back to. And so it's always, if I think historians can give us anything in terms of concrete politics in the daily, go back to the document before you talk about it. Um, so one sort of really concrete example that I always talk about in the classroom is um, Wilson's 14 points, which everybody cites as having laid out the concept of self-determination. But self-determination is nowhere in the 14 points. And every almost every historian I know repeats this error. Um, so myth-making can happen. Um, in multiple ways. And sometimes it's also through a sleight of hand and a kind of taking for granted what we know. Um, the question of, of, of throwing the Jews into the sea, um, quote unquote, I think this is a really important moment to re-examine and something for us all to think about. And another way that um, I believe is an answer to your question, Sarian, about what does it mean to be under the forces of denial, which is that equation and that myth-making sets up a formula that Palestinian freedom means Jewish unfreedom. (laughs) or, Or put another way, the Jewish freedom is contingent on Palestinian unfreedom, right, so why? Because there is this Uh, 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 insistence that um, Palestinians who are not called by their name, and I think this is, you know, this is another point I hope I can get to, um, which, you know, that they are essentially um, civilizationally anti-Semitic. And so, and this continues until today. I can't tell you how many times after I do a talk or I teach in a well-intentioned Jewish American usually will write to me and say, assure me my future if you are free so that I can be on board with your freedom. And that's kind of like, I'm going to keep killing you until you can guarantee me that you won't kill me in the future because I know that all you ever want to do is kill me. We can't get out of that. Do you know what I mean? Like I can never evidence for you a future that is unattainable to me, nor can we move forward if my unfreedom is the premise for your freedom, right? So this myth, I think, is really crucial to that kind of logic and its repetition and recurrence. In terms of denial versus recognition, and I think this is a really interesting moment that, um, you know, Shai ha- ha- has um, Talk to us about, which is, you know, what happens when something becomes assimilated into the narrative, into nationalist narratives? Um, and this is, you know, very timely in our own moment with Juneteenth, um, where we have a lot of people saying, you know, well, great, give us the symbolic day. Where are reparations? Where is the end to police violence? Where is, you know, the end of this state-sanctioned Um, targeting of Black life. And we're nowhere near that in Israel because the Nakba is still criminalized. But I do think that there's something to think through there about denial and visibility happening at once and what that means about how people have been able to move the discussion and the debate. Um, so it, it's, it's, there's a lot of things going on that we still have to unpack. I will say, um, you know, that it was quite interesting during the, um, you know, xenophobic settler flag day event to, to hear the settler say, <laughs> um, and, and so, which means the second Nekba is coming. We all saw that video, right? And, and, and so this is an interesting moment, like, okay, so uh, we've recognized that a nekba has happened and you're promising another nekba of, of that sort, even though the NECPA never ended. Um, so it just, I think that's a, that's a particular moment for us to think through. Um, in terms of, I'll, I'll end with um, a point about the political economy of knowledge production in history. And I think it's really important to understand here that there is, that there have been Palestinian and Western scholars that have been evidencing and dismantling um, the, what happened in 1948 for many years. But the but the but the question only came to be legitimate and understood with the birth of the Israeli new historians and because you know in the 80s the 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 this crop of Israeli historians are able to access new archival material and it's also in the wake of Um, the war in Lebanon which was a complete disaster and there were like even the biggest myth makers couldn't couldn't make that into anything but what it was a war of choice right Um, and, and so then you have this Cropping up of these new historians, and the best um, kind of summary of all of this debate is in Avishai's piece, "The Debate About 1948," where he breaks down all of the seven myths around the 1948 war. I I want to really um, invite us to think about how and why is it that. Israeli new histor- the Israeli new historians have gained a legitimacy that others have not and that others will never a- attain. So I I want us to think critically about the relationship between subjectivity and the claims to being objective. Isn't that interesting? That if you are of a particular subjectivity, you have more legitimacy to claim objective um that's one point the second point i would say there that i think is really important and continues to be the debate around 1948 um is the question of design versus circumstance so yes it happened yes planned it was there yes all of this happened but you know what it, it wasn't the intention there's no smoking gun right like and this just drives me insane. Like this whole debate just drives me crazy because, and and Lena's already mentioned, um, Shira's work and, and and many others who have shown that all the Palestinians who attempted to return to the land after 1948 were forcibly, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, coerced in not doing so. Right. And so we become, we get into uh, this debate of was it intentional or was it not intentional, which seems to me to be completely a question of the a framework of the perpetrator. If you're a Palestinian, you don't. You don't really care did they intend to expel all of us was there a was there a big plan that said that or did it just happen right the imperative of the zionist movement has been from its inception to create a jewish state in a place that had a jewish minority so the question of design versus circumstance completely erases that reality and does not understand how it is to be on the other side of that Zionist imperative.
0: Thank you, Shireen. Um, thank you for all of those, those challenges for how we are thinking and how we can think um, and how we should be thinking and questions we need to be asking. And I, I want to, you are coming at this, you are all coming at this, um, as expert historians, as professionals who actually sift through the evidence that exists and, um, and, 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 and the mountains of expectations against you, depending on your subjectivity, either working for you or working against you. But I want to ask specifically about how you know what you know and how you convey it and what you base it upon, because we know that telling this history is telling a history as you have been showing us again and again, a history that has been so systematically denied and hidden and covered up. So I want to add, we need to lay a foundation here. How do you do your work? What are the archives? What is in them? Who gets access to them? Who preserves them? What got preserved? Where, we're talking about Nakba artifacts. Um, I'm asking specifically about the Israeli archives. What is in them and who can access them? Where did these materials come from? And um, specifically about the Palestinian archives. And well, Shai, you have actually fought for access to archives. So I want to ask you to start with you. Tell us about the archives, please.
3: Thank you. Uh, This is obviously a question I'm very interested in. Uh, I'll I'll try to to keep it sort of bird's eye view as possible. Um, And and Shireen has already mentioned the new historians and some of the work that they have done. Um, And of course, when we talk about archives, it doesn't have to be official archives. There are many, many other archives, oral testimonies. We'll we'll talk about them. But I think that when we look at state archives, we need to, of course, uh, realize that the state archives are an ideological project of the state. They are there, in the Israeli case, to sustain Zionism, but they also tell other stories and other narratives. And I think, um, at least that's a claim that many historians have tried to make, and I've, I've tried to make that as well, that this reading against the archival grain is possible. Now, another crucial point I want to make here Uh, for those studying Palestine or Palestinians is that the Israeli archives in many significant ways are the Palestinian archives and I don't mean this in an abstract sense or even in an activist sense but in an immediate directly scholarly observation right in 1948 Um, Dozens, maybe hundreds of libraries and archives of institutions were looted, stolen, confiscated, and embedded into the Israeli archives, right? I think we've only scratched the surface of that. So I mean this in a very profound way that, at least for this period, Uh, The Israeli archives are also the Palestinian archives. That's true for 1982 and later. And a lot of these archives are embedded in something called the Israel Defense Archives, uh, uh, the Israel Defense Forces archive, and another archive that of the Israeli Shin Bet, which is totally inaccessible to scholars. Now, there's also the importance of, of accessibility. Who gets to go and do research there? And not everyone can, right? There are many who are blocked from entering Israel because of their political activism. And even those who do have physical access to Israel, not all of them can access that material. For many decades, only veterans of the Israeli intelligence apparatus were allowed to look at these archives. Now that's changing in significant ways, but there are significant uh, roadblocks uh, to that material that uh, remain. Um, You know, several years ago, I've had this prolonged legal battle on one file, uh, a a study that Ben-Gurion had commissioned in the 60s that to prove supposedly that Palestinians left on their own accord and all the documents that went into uh, producing this sort of pet research project that was supposed to be used for propaganda. And this went for many years until the Israeli cabinet eventually decided to block the uh, declassification of this one file. But after I said all that, I still want to emphasize that there is a lot in those archives. There's a lot that is open and there's a lot that is waiting for historians. Israel prides itself with operating a professional system of archives based on the German model and liberal declassification laws. Now, as long as these are the principles, even if only rhetorically, as long as they continue to drive the state action, it will be very difficult, if not impossible to erase those nakba trails and expunge them for the archives. That is something that I think is almost um, impossible. So there is some uh, silver lining in this uh, context.
0: Great, thank you. Shireen, I wanna ask you about the archives also because you have written about what's in them and what's not in them, uh, about about the challenges of relying on the state archive. Um, but before I, I I ask you the, the bigger um, theoretical questions, you have a, an extraordinary story of having immersed yourself for more than a decade in the Israeli state archives and writing, beautiful, authoritative history about Palestinians drawn from archival research, extensive archival research, not only in the Israeli state archives. And then you had a chance meeting with a, a family archive, a personal file through, um, through which you met a man named Naim, Naim, Naim Kotran, a man you've called your ghostly teacher. You wrote a book about him, it turns out, without knowing you were writing about him. This is your great-grandfather. And so I want to ask you to tell us this story of, of, um, as you entitled one of your pieces, how you met your great-grandfather in the archives, what, how you met him, what that means, um, and what that meaning, what that meeting means to you. Thank you so
1: much, Sarah-Ann. Yeah, so uh, I mean, on the on the very primary level, I kind of building off of some of the earlier things I was saying about subjectivity and objectivity, I think that we're trained as historians to really mute the personal, that the personal pit tends to be a liability at times and my story, begin, my story about Naeem, if you allow me, sort of begins with my book, Men of Capital, in, in many ways, because um, and, and that, uh, that story also hinges on the archive. So one of the things I think that's really important to understand about what happens to how we think about archives in colonial conditions is the uh, uh, assumption that the records of Palestinians do not exist. So what winds up happening in that kind of context is that the Palestinian story remains untold. So there's a whole kind of um, uh, uh, you know paradigm shift that Zachary Lockman in many ways initiated around relational history, right? That we have to tell our stories, that 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 the Zionist movement was not a European movement, that it comes to Palestine and that it shapes and reshapes um, itself and Palestine and the Palestinians, and we have to look at these stories together, um, which which was a really groundbreaking argument. At the same time, much of the scholarship that, that followed in that kind of invitation would tell the story of the yeshuv and then sort of say, well, there are no Palestinian documents, so we're not going to tell it, we're not going to tell the story, that story, because there there are no Palestinian documents, but actually you can never make that assumption there are always documents to find there is always something new to learn there's always something that you can re- you can spend your whole life with a document and miss out on a minor on miss out on what you think is a minor detail that can re- that can change everything for you right so my first invitation there would be if you ever in any context see Uh, 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 you know, a foregone conclusion that there are no archives, be suspicious. That there are no documents, be suspicious. That's a colonial logic, right? Um, What we would call an epistemic erasure, right? So for me, I got to the archive, I got to, um, I was first, I was working in Givat Habiba, which is a a kibbutz near um, Haifa that had its own uh, archive. And then I was working in the Israeli state archive, um, a little bit in the central Zionist archive, and then in the Nablus municipality archive. And basically my story there was, I found a story that nobody had told because people hadn't looked in the documents I was looking at. And my story wasn't a heroic story. My story was about um, a kind of group of middling sorts that complicate how we understand Palestinian social history. Uh, neither the heroic peasants or workers nor the the kind of decadent um, uh, 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 notables, right? And I didn't like these guys because I, to think of myself as a radical, (laughs) you know, they're sort of conservative, capitalist, invested in profit, you know, see themselves as above everybody else, um, above the Palestinian subaltern and so on. And I always knew there was something that was holding me to this project that I couldn't really figure out. And then after the book came out, I was visiting my aunt, and she kind of accidentally said to me that she had a document that I should get framed for her, my great grandfather, and then handed over this file, which really um, showed me. That I had been writing about my great grandfather. That he had been in the, he had stocks in the businesses I was, I was, I spent time with, and you know, had um, banked with the banks I had written histories of, was in correspondence with the Chambers of Commerce, um, went to the, went to the accountant that I opened my book with, you know, and these really, you know, wrote about some, some of the consumer. Desires and strategies that I had spent so much time trying to unpack and. Um, it, it, it was such an incredibly moving experience um, and continues to be so and here they here they both are kind of protecting me. Um, the thing I want to say about them, though, about both of my great grandparents is that the that these kinds of family papers that, that, that they preserved were really a register of what they hoped to regain. Um, so, they, so they preserved an archive. The archive that remains is an archive of private property denied, money lost, land lost. Um, uh, and in that way, I think we can begin to see the logic of archiving, which is a logic that, as Shai said, we have to kind of challenge and read against the grain, both for what is in it and what remains outside of it. In my great grandfather's story, what's in it is his experience of 1948, his land dispute with his brother, um, his 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 inventory of lost um, of lost goods. His, the the goods that they lost in 1948, his lands being burnt, et cetera. What's not in it um, is his global story, is his story in Baltimore. He he, he, um, goes to medical school in Baltimore. He spends time in Sudan. The family has an enslaved domestic worker. Um, So what the archive is in all of its proliferation is a place to, is it's a place to read, this is what anthropologists teach, anthropologists teach us, that we ought, that we have to read a document for, to think about how did this document get here? What is behind this document? How does it make its way here? What can I derive from it? And what is being actively silenced by it, right? Um, if I could, I, I'll also just make, um two quick points about the Palestinian archive as such Um, one is I think it's really important for people to understand that Palestinian archives are a target every single time there is an Israeli assault on Palestine or the Palestinians 1948 1967 1982 uh, 2002, every single, in fact, when I was working in the Nablus municipality archive, they were, uh, in 2003, they were moving the archive from a building to an underground place because every time the Israeli army assaulted Nablus, they targeted the archive. The archives are a site of claim making and they are a target, right, of um of this denial of peoplehood, so just how might it feel for for, for you know I um, unlike uh, Lena, you know I'm not a Palestinian um, from inside. I was born in Beirut um, and grew up in the United States. And when I arrived to the Israeli State Archive, is it? Was a, really traumatic experience for me because I had to this was back when it was still more um, kind of in that 1970s building with like the founding fathers in the in the foyer and so there's a great deal of simply being in the space is a kind of soft violence, right? because the place is structured around denying you. Um, the naming of the files, the abandoned Arab documents, right? That is a very particular logic that in and of its the lexicon and that you have to repeat if you're citing those archives, right? So this is a violence of meaning that archives are really crucial to. Um, for me personally, as someone born in Beirut and you know was there until I was seven or eight, you know, think about how it might have felt for me to find that um, all of the documents from the 1982 invasion are in Haifa University Library. It's like the most counterintuitive, you know, Type of experience. Um, or, you know, another story that I always tell about the Sekakini daughters um, who, after 1967, find their father's entire library with his handwriting and his books at the Hebrew University Library. So these are sites of violence. These are sites of dispossession. We have to take that seriously. At the same time, I do want to say that the fact that we, that we as Palestinians don't have a singular state archive, even though there's so much competition within and among Palestinians about archive making and archive fever, um, in a way, that is both a burden and a gift because it invites us to think creatively about archives. It invites us to talk to family members, to ask about family papers, to think collaboratively about what it means to ask people to let you into those records, right? And to think creatively and critically always about where we get
0: our histories and how we narrate them. Wonderful, thank you so much, Shereen thank you for bringing your great, your great grandfather to us um, and and everything that you've learned and and named about archives and violence lena tell us a little bit about your experience with the with the archives
2: yeah thanks Shai and Shireen, for the 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 comments you've brought up really important aspects of, of this question and i just have a brief a comment about access that Shireen alluded to, but I wanted to kind of go into a little bit, that there are layers of exclusion um, that are very much built into the archives as an institutional structure, right? So I can easily access the archives physically, because I'm a Palestinian citizen of Israel. So my citizenship kind of entitles me the, the foot in the door in ways that are more than what Shirin could in certain contexts, and what definitely Palestinian refugees uh, without an American passport or without a European passport can do. Uh, but even the foot in the door is always kind of a, a um, I think a facade of the Israeli democracy. Right. There's the equal foot in the door. Right. Shia and I can walk into the IDFA in equal footing, except what Shia can get and what I could get are very different things. So the structure within itself has kind of levels and levels of exclusion um, that we have to be attentive to. Um, and, and that can be very extreme and that can be very, uh, very, very, um, subtle in certain ways, right, you can't see it. Like, you know, when the, at the period that Shai was doing his uh, court case, which was actually very influential in certain ways because the, um, the archive got a little rattled and had to do some concessions, right? So I get the status of the, um, finally, after a year of delay, I get the status of the um, authorized researcher, which means you can actually request declassifying files. And then they tell me, well, you know, since we actually just had to do it for a bunch of people it's going to take a really long time and you know four years five years after finishing my uh, my dissertation i get an email saying we got some of the files you you requested you know five years six years before so the 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 game is done in, in multiple layers so the question is which is touches on one of the questions that were asked by the audience is so so do we give it legitimacy do we use the Palestinian archives within the pal- within the Israeli archives? And my practical answer to this is yes, yes, because it's a resistance project, because it's an anti-colonial project of using the archives against the state, of basically I will use my privilege and Chai will use his privilege in order to basically undermine systemic exclusion and to undermine. Israeli structural discrimination, but also Israeli myth-making and narrative-making by basically saying there is a Palestinian history. There is a Palestinian archive. It's controlled by Israel, but we will not give you the pleasure of silencing and denying us. And we'll continue um, doing this project. I ended up at 12 archives in, in order to tell the story that I am telling about Nazareth. Um, And I think that's a part of what we do to challenge this is to actually um, push every door and push every avenue and challenge every exclusion in order to um, affirm that Israel cannot succeed in its project of um, excluding or destroying the Palestinian archive. Along with what Shireen said, which is to also think more creatively about how do we create an alternative Palestinian archive that challenges and questions the validity of a state archive as the be all end all of a historical narrative. And to kind of open the space in collaboration with marginalized and indigenous communities around the world to actually um, say we as indigenous people reject your definition of what is credible and who who gets to to tell the story and who gets to have a voice and we reshape the understanding of archive and how what we trust through this uh, uh, project
0: thank you so much so that this is a, a project of challenging who is considered credible what voices are um, considered authoritative about their own lives. That's what I'm understanding from you. And I, I know that um, the collection of Palestinian oral histories has been so important in establishing this kind of counter effort to the, the official narrative and to the, to the state's official narrative. Um, and Shai, in your, in your book, you actually credit the gathering of, of oral histories from Palestinians as opening up the space for you to do the work that, that you did um, for le- legitimizing individual people telling the stories of their lives and of what matters to them, what's important, um, how they made meaning out of what happened, not just a, a sort of view from above of events, but actually how people made meaning, which Shireen is a, is a big part of what you have talked about also. and and um, And I'm thinking in particular, I can't remember in which in which article Shireen but you have this beautiful list of it, it, it's beautiful and it's harrowing but it's a, it's a list of your great grandfather's property four pages of a list of, of of what he names as what he lost as he was trying to petition the israeli authorities to return to him what was taken and it's so very poignant because as a as a reader you read it and you're reading about his his furniture and his their, their personal items and you're looking around, I am looking around my room, of course, where I'm sitting. You can really imagine a life and, and the life. Um, and this is what you all are doing in your work is bringing these lives to us with such richness and such relatability um, and such power. So I wanna ask one more archives question, um, which Shai, because your book just came out and because you use such a, this unique resource in here, you have accessed letters from 1948 that the Israeli authorities intercepted and copied in order to assess the mood of the writers, whether those writers were Jewish soldiers or Arab soldiers or Palestinians who were undergoing dispossession. So tell us about, please, those letters, where they came from and what it means to use them as a primary source for writing history.
3: Thanks, uh, Sarah. And you know, I think that what is um, so amazing about uh, Shireen and Lena's work is that it keeps bringing back to you, as a reader, even one that is familiar with the story of 1948, that you really don't know the story. You don't know the story about the elites, and you don't know the story about the communists. And so, unless you're really trying to, to, unless you're reducing everything to a character to a character, when you read their work, it really tells you how much uh, about uh, these groups that you don't understand. That's something that really um, I was really interested in in exploring in my work uh, through these personal letters. They're not the same sort of sources because, as you mentioned, they were secretly intercepted by this Big Brother apparatus working from 1948 all the way to 2004, right? That copied every two weeks thousands of letters not to spy on individuals, although that was done as well, but to get the quote-unquote state of mind of those populations uh, uh, more broadly. So Palestinians inside Israel, Palestinian refugees, Mizrahi Jews, American Jews who come to Israel and so many other groups. And unfortunately with the source, you can sort of trace uh, a one individual over a lengthy period of time, but you can get snippets, right, vignettes, of many, many, many individuals um, in a particular moment. And that's um, what I try to to do um, in in this work. And I'll I'll mention a second why um, there's sort of, why these sources is also pragmatic and sort of is created in in a significant way for nefarious means. And I'll mention that at the end. But let me give you an example for um, the way I feel those letters um, tell you something, um, uh, that is a little bit, um, um, or, or that is unique, that is very raw. Um, for example, when we talk about the Nakba, um, and this is a, a goes back to some uh, talking points and myth busting, um, you know, it, we talk a lot about what happened in 1948. And um, there's a, a interesting statistics by uh, uh, Salman Abu Abusita in, a, in something called the Atlas of Palestine. And he shows that about 25% uh, were expelled by Jewish forces, literally put on buses and driven across the border. Uh, and some uh, 55% or so Palestinians fled uh, during the war. What does this fleeing means, right? Because when we hear this, um, especially in an Israeli Jewish context, certain ideas come to mind. You know, did they want to leave? Were they, why did they leave? What made them leave? I think those... Uh, Personal letters that, again, were copied for nefarious means, I'll mention that in a second, give some really interesting and and something that um, a unique perspective on what that means. And so I look at some letters from Aka, from Haifa, of those Palestinians who you know have shooting at their neighborhoods in 1948, and they correspond with their children who had already uh, been uh, evacuated to Beirut, saying, "I don't know to leave to go. I mean, I could be killed here at any moment. But what does it mean to leave Haifa and go to Beirut now? Uh, in in and what does that mean? That will happen later on. Will I be allowed to be back immediately? Right? Someone is writing. There's a sort of a fire in our midst. I have to go, but I also Also have to stay. And then those letters also show that in those who had left, um, um, for example, Jaffa, right, some uh, owners of uh, Citrus Grove, they had this fundamental belief that they will immediately back. And so you have their correspondence with their neighbors um, saying you have to till this Citrus Grove for this month that I will be away, right? You can't let us wilt. Uh, if you let it wilt, um, the, the Israeli state authorities may take that, or you know, I won't have a, a livelihood when I come back. And so those letters really capture uh, uh, these raw emotions that, that talk about um, what you mentioned, like what sense people made of reality and and they tell a, a really sad story right someone's writing about the deep depression that they went into in, in 1949 uh, once they understood um unlike what they may have thought that a return would not be so uh, immediate and um these are uh, i i thought or reading them for the first time you know i i read those uh, letters and and then decided I wanted to go into academia and, and you know uh, sort of end the career in journalism and, and come and write about those. And uh, it's been quite uh, 12 or 13 years. And the last thing I want to mention is that sadly, these letters were written by a, a very nefarious Big Brother apparatus. And some of them were used in order to take away the property or even to shoot at those Palestinian returneers. Who are trying to go back, right? So the letters were intercepted from refugee camps uh, in Lebanon, in Syria, to families inside Israel, right? They were intercepted, and the routes w- where these um, refugees were trying to take to go back were um, were were discovered, and sometimes these people were ambushed, killed, arrested, or expelled again. So it is it's it's certainly a source that was created for nefarious means. Uh, as a historian, obviously, it, I think, tells a, a unique story and an important one. Um, um, and that's what I've set out to, to, to explore.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Shai. We have about 15 minutes left on our program and um, so much still to talk about. And I just want to thank you all again for being here, um, and thank you to all of our listeners for being with us as we do this this, this deep dive um, into what it means to tell the stories of the Nakba, to understand the Nakba, and also to to understand history through the lives of regular people. Um, read against or read into the bigger themes of of history. And Lena, that is so much what your work is doing. And so I want to ask you specifically, you write about a variety of strategies that Palestinian citizens use to negotiate with the state or used to negotiate with the state, ranging from confrontation to accommodation. And you write about the need to disrupt the idea that there is either confrontation or accommodation looking at at regular people, at strategies, at at citizens. And so I want to ask you to tell us more about Palestinian citizenship and about why it matters to um, not just understand Palestinian history as either resistance or collaboration.
2: Thank you, Sarah. I think I'll start with a, a part of why this question came up to me. Um, one of the most brilliant Palestinian authors, Emil Habibi, um, in, uh, in the collection, Sudasiyat Layam Sitta, the, 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 co- the collection that has the story of Saeed the Optimus, which is one of his most known stories. But one of the other shorter stories starts with this idea that um, now after 67, they understand we, were, we weren't traitors. Um, because we stayed at home. So for me, that always resonated, and I read this as a kid, and then I read it as an adult, and it always resonated, this sense of what does it mean, this treason versus heroism, this nationalism versus, um, you know, capitulation to colonialism, etc. cetera. And, and it became more poignant in the context of the 1990s and 2000s uh, Palestinian internal Palestinian political scene inside Israel where kind of people were making claimed claims about their history as as a part of this you know grandiose narrative um and when I started looking into the archives and into the daily lives and, and I chose, I'm a social historian. So for me, I chose arenas that are not always very political and definitely not glamorous. Like the context, the bickering about water struggle uh, would seem very boring to most people who are engaged in the big politics. right? But when you look at these, you start understanding that when people were doing these things, not they were not being heroes or traitors. They were surviving. They were struggling to make meaning to produce meaning of their lives as they were living them. Um, And they were not in the comfort of our, you know, collective um, studies um, and um, trying to to do that. They were actually in the trenches, right? And and, and for me, it's really important to highlight this point. Um, And it's been an argument with several Palestinian historians, but think in order to understand history, You have to put yourself in the place of your historical actor, not in your comfortable position. If I am a communist leader or the mayor of Nazareth in July 19, 1948, which is two days after the occupation of the city by the Israeli army, how did life look like? And life looked awful. Nazareth had 15,000 residents in 1946 in the last census. There's claims to up to 22,000 refugees living in Nazareth between March and the, March 1948 and, and, and the next year when the Israelis start re- resettling people. You're in a city that is overrun by refugees whose lives have been shattered, who have been reduced to nothing. Every single building in Nazareth was full of people, literally every single available space, the monasteries, the schools, and this is a holy Christian city, right? So there's tons of monasteries and religious institutions. They're all full to capacity. And then people are forced to cut down the trees in the gardens to build shacks to live in. So when you're living in the midst of that, your political decisions, and your everyday choices are shaped by that. When you're looking around and you're understanding Israel has just defeated all the Arab armies, right? And the Israeli army is bombasting this, right? It's, it's you're being inundated into this every single day. So wh- how do you respond? And this is the kind of work I'm trying to do. And what I show is that, um, they, the Palestinians had a formal British citizenship. It's a colonial citizenship and it has its own limitations, but they took that seriously. And as my work, but also Shireen's work and others have showed, they really do make claims and they push the state on that with understanding of the limitations. And they build on that, Palestinians build on that to confront the Israeli state. And what they try to do is to create a meaningful citizenship, I argue. What they try to do is to say, okay, Israel gave us citizenship because of its own interest. right? Israel gives citizenship because of the UN recognition, because it's its own internal consideration, regardless of the Palestinians. And and in certain ways, uh, Shira shows a lot of the context about it. But it's very, um, very much for the Israeli interest, not with regard to the Palestinians. And what the Palestinians do is try to force the state to give substance. And and this is a a, a, conflict, a struggle that resonates in the U.S. today even if you think about Black Lives Matter, this is the struggle that says you know you can't claim you know that the civil rights movement succeeded without actually having real meaning to that without stopping killing and imprisoning in uh, um, black bodies in mass right so this is the Palestinians were basically making the same argument saying you can't Have it both ways. You can't say we're a democracy and we gave you citizenship and then turn around and steal our lands and imprison us and kill us and dispossess us. Um, So what they're trying to do is kind of create a framework in everyday life, whether in the municipal management, whether in water, whether in labor struggles, they, every day they, they get up and they go and they, Try to stay home, and they try to stay home as Palestinians, um, and in that, try to make the Israeli state uh, become something that is um, more accommodating, at least, um, and 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 their citizenship uh, more meaningful, and they push the envelope onto what Israel wants into the against the colonial project using. Um, its own liberal claims.
0: Wonderful, thank you, Lena. Thank you so much. I, I'm going to move us sadly into the very last round, our very our, our, our final questions, um, and I say sadly only because I have dozens more questions for each of you, um, and I'm so grateful that you're here. So I'm going to ask you each the same the same question, and Shireen, we'll start with you where do you think Nakba scholarship is going and and why, where do you think it should, where do you think it is going, where do you think it needs to go and why?
1: Um, I think it is going in some really, really interesting ways. Um, um, One, I think that Palestinian studies is in really deep conversation with much else critical archival work um, and, and thinking about catastrophe as well. And here I want to, um, even though we didn't get have time to, to, to get to this point, I think it's important to understand how nationalist and modernist logics are reified colonial logics, right? So that the people who um, have said that, you know, the charge of being a trader, for example, um, whether in Lena's case or in my case, this was often what people said to me too, oh, you're businessmen, they're they're just they're just compradors, they're just traders. Why study them? They failed, they're awful, blah, blah, blah. So these are the kinds of logics we have to keep pushing back on at the same time that we remember that the moments that we understand as having been resolved and clear, as Lena shows in her work, as Shai shows in his work, are in process. When people are going, you know, the story of my great grandfather too, in 1948, he he and, and my great grandmother stay on the land for three years, you know? And often we look back at these moments and think everything has been sort of set out, right? But we have to understand that historical contingency and attending to it is our way out. It is a kind of liberatory project, right? And part of that is to open up our categories, even the very category of Jewish and Arab as categories that are partial in process in part in 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 the process of becoming and shifting um, constantly, right? So that is, I think, what NECBA studies can do, put forward a radical understanding of the historical that is really critiquing how our conceived was, our conceived narrative, our received narratives um, are, are trying to contain the radical potential of what
3: we can learn.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Shireen. Shai, what do you say?
3: Wow, I I, I really wanna echo um, what Shireen um, said and also work because I think that it really creates um, this really fruitful avenue of taking oral histories in archival history, in a serious scholarly manner, and bringing them into conversation together. Um, You know, I always wanted to do something like that, but I just didn't feel that I I can do it, literally, and I think Shirin is doing it in a a really profound and amazing uh, way, and I think that is the way to go. By the way, we've seen other fields of scholarship built on that, right? The, the study of the Holocaust, for example, would have not be possible if oral testimonies and oral history would not have been seriously integrated into scholarship and I think that's a really fruitful Avenue uh, but also really unpacking the story of, of, of Jews and Arabs and the way they are created as as certain fixed identities you know the in the book I start with the story of an Iraqi Jew who fought for the Arab Liberation Army in 48 against other Jews right and as I remember reading it it's like this is not possible how is this possible what does that mean? But of course, in the zeitgeist of today, these things are inconceivable. But in 1948 and in the 40s and even later, these were categories and identities in flux. How and why um, I think uh, scholars and historians can can help can help us find out.
2: Thank you so much, Shai,
0: Lena.
3: Uh,
2: So thank you both Shireen and Shai because you highlight points that I I wanted to to make and because your work has really done a great service to to the field and and, and inspired in so many ways. Um, For me, the one point that I want to add to that is is this juncture of activist academic in which the um, the Nakba scholarship is at. Um, One of the reasons that the question of the Palestinian refugees has been the core issue of the Nakba um, uh, history for the Israeli authorities and then for the Palestinians is because there's a very direct meaningful ramifications regarding the right of return. A Part of Israeli denial of the right of return has been based on the lies that were created about what the Nakba was and w- what it meant and why people became refugees. And I think one of the, good trends that I'm seeing these days is that we're also, not only are we doing the work that pushes the envelope, that actually challenges the conceived notions, that actually looks beyond the complex, sorry, beyond the simplistic nationalist narrative, both the Palestinian and the Israeli in that sense, by the way, because my work and Shirin's and and Shai's push against both, Uh, but beyond that, we're also making a public engagement and a kind of affirmation that it is okay for scholars to enter into the public sphere in order to protect justice. That is, in fact, the moral imperative for us as scholars to speak up in clear and unambiguous language that says the Nakba was a huge historical injustice just as the genocide against the indigenous people um, was, just as slavery was, just as the Holocaust was, the Nakba was a historical injustice that needs to be recognized and contended with. And by contended with, I mean rectified in the sense that the victims of the Nakba then and today have to be compensated, have to be allowed to return to their hands, uh, to their lands, to their dispossess- to, what, to basically made, up, made whole for their dispossession. Um, so reparation is at the core of the question. Um, just again, as Shireen started the conversation with Black Lives Matter and the talk about reparation, I think it's fitting to talk about reparation um, as a key to our understanding of history of rectifying historical injustice.
0: Thank you so much, Lena and Shai and Shireen. Thank you so much for your clarity and for your, um, your pursuit of justice and pursuit of truth and for leading us and teaching us and for finding the time to talk to us today. Thank you. And I wanna thank everyone who joined us or listened to this event. We are so glad to be able to share this conversation with you. Thank you to Project 48 for co-sponsoring it with us please check back at the FMEP website, www.fmep.org for the list of resources, a list of resources relating to this conversation and for announcements of upcoming events, webinars, podcasts. Thank you all so much. See you next time. Thank you. One last reminder. Subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud so you don't miss anything. We are adding new content every week. Thank you so much.